0: Good morning. I want to say just how impressed I am at our ability to adapt so quickly to what can only be described as the enemy's attempts to uh, throw us off course. I guess I might predict that the microphone will go out and we'll have to rely on my booming voice later in the service. So. I also was faced with some struggle this morning in the way of technology. I, I put my notes together. Oh my gosh. I have no idea what I can't get it. I put my notes together and I, uh, I sync them to my iPad so that I can follow them up here and I'm not flipping through pages because I tend to get a little chaotic. My introduction and my conclusion this morning did not sync. And so. This is the day that the Lord hath made. (laughs) No, I, I don't I don't really need my notes for an introduction because we're picking up where we've already been spending a lot of time in the book of Deuteronomy, looking at chapter six, and we've already really kind of defined everything that's going on here. We have the leader of the Israelite nation who has since led them out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, and then led them through the wilderness. Delivered God's law to them, been a part of all of these great and wonderful things that we can remember from the book of Exodus and the the familiar Bible studies. But now in Deuteronomy, we have this Israelite leader getting ready to leave them so that they can go and reach the promised land that they've set out for from the beginning. Deuteronomy literally means, it's two words put together, deutero coming from the word two or second and onomie, as in the enumeration of the law, Deuteronomy is literally the second giving of the law for the nation of Israel, so that they can remember God's truth. Remember, this generation that's about to go into the Promised Land is not the generation that experienced the deliverance of God out of Egypt themselves. This generation is is significantly different. They were raised in the wilderness. And they are still being reminded to hold on to God's promises. And so far, Moses has spent the majority of his time re-emphasizing the first part of God's law. You might even call it the most important part or the most significant part of God's law because everything after it is a rolling point. What is the most important Jesus was asked the same question. Teacher, teacher, what is the most, the greatest commandment? And Jesus responded to them that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, with all your strength. Quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, what we've called the Shema. And Moses continues to emphasize this point that every law that we know or that we can understand Rolls off of our obedience to loving God. The way that we honor our parents, the way that we interact with His Word, the way that we interact with the, the world, everything rolls off of do we love God? Do we allow ourselves to love God? Now, we've made it past the Shema and we've moved now all the way to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 14. Again, going back to these first commandments, let's read them and understand the importance and maybe even the dangers that kind of loom around understanding this and then the consequences of not understanding it. If you will, follow along with me. We're just looking at two verses this morning, verse 14 and verse 15. But as I read it out loud, I'd ask that you read it along with me. But before we do that... Let's pray for understanding our father in heaven. I thank you so much for your word and for the privilege that you've given us to gather here this morning and to study your word. And God, I recognize and I understand that it is impossible to understand any truth found in your revealed word without your spirit guiding us in that understanding. And so, Lord, I ask that I would get out of the way and that I would listen to your teaching and your instruction. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray and ask all of these things. Amen. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 6 verse 14, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and He destroy you off the face of the earth. Isn't that an exciting passage of Scripture? Don't go after other gods lest you tempt the anger, the jealousy of God, and He remove you from the earth completely. If, if you're not hearing that correctly, you should perk up like this is a pretty powerful promise that God has given us. Don't go after other gods or I will obliterate you. And this brings up Cold War era kind of picturesque moments of God's wiping us out for our disobedience in this. And so there's a few things that I really want to spend time exploring this morning. And the sermon's a little bit different because I want to explore two different parts, right? I want to explore one These other gods that he is warning the Israelite nation against. And then the second part is, I want to understand this jealousy of God because it's frankly terrifying. And so I want to explore and understand what it means that we have a God who can be jealous, that can make this promise that in disobedience, he will obliterate us. What kind of a loving God is this? And and so I want to explore God's nature this morning. The first part, though, going back to the first part, is this command to have no other gods before God. Or the way that it's written in verse 14, to not go after other gods, to not pursue other gods. And, and this is, in part, it's a, it's a natural warning that these children, this, this, the, these descendant generations are about to leave The protection of their their parents, the people that have looked after them. They're about to embark on what is their own. They're about to be solely responsible for the decisions that they make as they enter a land where their parents cannot follow them. They're going into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And they're going to be tempted with other false systems of worship all around them. I don't want to spend time looking at the historical context of this and understanding if there's these false... Under- I don't think it's going to benefit us very much to understand these false systems of worship because it makes more sense to look at what's happening in our world today because we're faced with the exact same problem. There are false systems of worship all around us. And as Christians, I think some of us identify as being a generational Christian. We were blessed to be raised in a home where we were taught to love God. And that is a tremendous blessing. For some of us, maybe that isn't the case, though. Some of us had a special experience where God's love was shown to us in a different way. But in this generational picture, we are faced with the same problem that Israel is faced with. False systems of faith all around us. Especially in American culture, there are the list, I couldn't put them all in order. There's three, though, that have become pr- even more prominent. Uh, and, and recent events and everything else, there, there is of course, this humanistic movement there 's this universal movement, and of course, that you 've probably heard of critical race theory, which is somehow melded into what is being called the social justice gospel. And, and all of these things kind of gallivant. As consistent ideas with what the Bible, in fact, teaches us and instructs us. And the reason I bring it up is because we have Christians who say that they are Christians who are being deceived, who are being really caught up in a false way of thinking the same way these other gods that Israel's being warned against, this false way of thinking that is warping and it's damaging their concept of God. And I, I, don't, I don't want to spend too much time harboring on this, but I do want to explain what I mean. You know, the humanism movement, this kind of postmodern movement that, that the arts and academia has presented itself is this idea that at the core of humanity is a good man. A man that wants to do good things. A man that goes to bed at night and when he wakes up in the morning, his goal is that he wants to do better than he did the previous day. Again, completely contradicting what the Bible teaches us about the nature of man. That man at the core is rotten, depraved. That only by the grace of God are we able to to overcome depravity. And then you have this universal or universalism, which is the idea that basically all paths somehow lead to God, that as long as there is some sort of moral guiding point in a person's life, they will obtain salvation. If the Bible were simply a list of moral imperatives, and hear me, I want you to hear this. If the Bible were simply a list of moral imperatives, we would all be going to hell. No one's able to uphold the moral imperatives in the Bible. This universal movement undermines the importance of God's grace as the salvific factor in anyone's life. And then I said the social justice or this critical race theory, which is essentially this concept that has hinged itself to the importance of justice. The way that the Bible emphasizes justice in not only our worldly lives, but in the internal judgment of God. And it is said that justice is so important that humanity is the most important concept. Again, it's birthed out of both of these movements, humanism and universalism. And then this kind of postmodern movement so that we have this social justice gospel. Again, These are false ways of thinking. They are in contradiction with the simple truths found in the Bible. And the scary part about it is not that they exist. But after thousands and thousands of years, the same advice that Moses was giving to the Israelites, we need to hear this morning. We may not be the nation of Israel, but we are the chosen generation of God today. If you're a Christian, if you've been saved, you are God's chosen generation. These, and, and, and in that, why are we going after other gods? Why are we spending time allowing ourselves to be wrapped up with false idolatrous worship? The Bible has a simple message for us. It's so remarkably simple. It is a tremendous blessing that God made it simple, that we can understand it, that we can obtain it, that we can accept His grace for ourselves. But instead of spending time actually learning what God wants us to know about Him, we try to rationalize it. And so we fall victim to universalism and humanism and the social justice gospel because instead of thinking critically, we're truly sheep. These other gods, these other religions, these other faith systems that Israel was up against, where did they come from? There's something incredibly different about the, where these come from, these ideas, including the ones I've mentioned this morning, and where the Christian faith comes from. In all of these, we see the picture of man sitting down and through introspection trying to identify and explain creation and our consciousness. In all of these things, Man sits down and through a process of introspection, identifies that there is chaos in the world and out of it was born creation. And at the same time, has an awareness and a consciousness and is able to see these things and perceive these things. If we look at any ancient religion, those are the two sides of the coin that we see. Chaos and perception. And these two things come together and man explains it. And, and here's the process really that I'm trying to explain and, and I might be doing a bad job of keeping it simple, but stick with me. Man sits down, thinks inwardly towards himself, explains chaos and order. All of the ancient religions do this. Christianity is different though. There is not... The beginning of introspection. The same thing that causes man to sit down and say, how is it possible that I have a conscious mind, that I can say one thing is bad and one thing is good. As the Bible tells us, God created man with a conscience. It's a part of his natural revelation that he's done this. And and his revelation goes beyond that because God's also given us his inspired word that we can understand him and know him. And so through this word, it acts as a mirror in our life so that we can see ourselves clearly from the perspective of God. Rather than starting with introspection, Christianity ends with it. Rather than being formed as a as an attempt to rationalize the world around us. It is revealed to us so that we can understand the world around us. This is a tremendous difference. We have to stick to the revelation that's been given to us. Adding to it is going to be futile. Ignoring parts of it is going to be futile. And, and the danger of not knowing it is falling victim and falling prey to a false way of thinking. That's the first part that I wanted to go over this morning. I want to understand these false gods and understand that this warning is not jumped out of historical context just for the nation of Israel, but that it is recorded and inspired for our benefit today. Verse 14 goes on, or from verse 14 it goes on. Verse 15 starts, The Lord your God is in your midst. I want to stop here because this is, I just think, a a provoking passage of Scripture to find that God is in our midst. I mentioned these other ways of thinking, these other systems of thinking that they are birthed out of normally introspection. And this is so remarkably cool because out of that, what we see is an understanding of the creator. Everyone has an understanding of the creator because it's self-evident. God's revealed himself in nature. But, but in this understanding of the creator, this is so cool. God says that he hasn't left us. even a very surface level understanding of greek mythology roman mythology even the egyptian religion in the early days uh, even the ancient religions these gods are as much in chaos gods are in chaos as the rest of civilization and humanity but not not as it's revealed the way that we see it revealed is that god has not abandoned us He has not left us. In fact, He's still with us. He's in our midst. This is remarkable. And it helps us to understand God's jealousy too. And I'll get to this, but God is in our midst. When He created everything, He didn't spin the world up like a top and set it off into the cosmos to let it run its course and see what happens. This isn't some sort of grand experiment. This is a providential design that He formed each component knowing how it would interact, knowing what would come of it, knowing the pain and, and the struggle that we would experience in life, and knowing that it would draw us to Him knowing that it would form within us an understanding of Him. God created everything, and He stays with us. He helps us navigate it. And and He does all of this because He wants a relationship with us, constantly there reaching out to us. Again, I can't emphasize enough that revelation or the understanding of God, the disclosure of God does not occur because man set out on some sort of pursuit to understand everything. Our understanding of God comes about because God shows us that he's there. In the magnificence of the world that we live in. Born into our conscious minds. This is really an incredible grace, even before the cross. God is there in our midst. This phrase, it made me stop as I was studying this week, and I found it again in Zephaniah. And I just want to read from Zephaniah 3, verse 17, the entire piece that I found. God's word says, the Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This picture of God being present in our lives is a picture of tremendous love. This isn't hovering. This isn't, you know, we we talk about the helicopter parents and then even in... 2021. I joke that parents have graduated now. They're the Apache parents because, you know, so. um, But God's presence in our midst is a is a guiding force. And and I want to talk about how this explains his jealousy. Keep going. Look at this. It says that God is in our midst and he is a jealous God. This tremendous amount of love that God has for us to not abandon us despite sin that makes it impossible for a holy God to be in contact with sin. His presence with us is seen in his jealousy. Now, now this is really where we have to explain jealousy and we have to break it down a little bit. And so I have to read some definitions that I looked up. And so I, I'm pleading with you, please stick with me as I get through the boring part, because the What's being revealed here in Scripture is so phenomenally, incredibly exciting. I think it's going to be a blessing to all of us here this morning. And so please, please stick with me through the definitions. Jealousy. As we understand it, here's how it's defined by dictionary.com. A feeling of resentment against someone because of that person's rivalry, success, or advantages. It is characterized by or proceeds from suspicious fears or envious resentment. Dictionary.com's good. Like I said before, Michelle and I were once English majors, and so let's look at what the OED or the Oxford English Dictionary says a feeling or showing an envious resentment to someone or their achievements, possessions, or perceived advantages. These definitions carry with them some sort of a negative connotation, don't they? The primary understanding of the word jealousy that we have carries with it this idea of bitterness, of envy, of what we would even describe as sin... Right, it's the bounds of the rest of the Ten Commandments. This is the covet covetous idolatry of man that we see something and that we want it. Does that mean that God has sinned by being jealous? I keep waiting for one of our deacons to tell me, Pastor, you can't say that from the pulpit, but I think I keep getting away with it because I clarify by no means. Scripture is not going to contradict itself anywhere in the Bible. We know that God does not sin, that He is completely without sin. And so we know that when the Bible says that God is jealous, that He is jealous without being sinful. I I would assert then that God's jealousy is not like these definitions I've read for us this morning. So let's see if there's any other definitions of jealousy Dictionary.com has a second definition of being vigilant in maintaining and guarding something. Being vigilant in guarding something or protecting something. Again, the OED says fiercely protective of one's rights or possessions. I think we're starting to get a little bit closer to what God's jealousy looks like. This isn't an enraged covet of something. This is a righteous protection over something. The second definition gives us a picture of what God's jealousy looks like, it, it explains to us his intolerance of unfaithfulness. Or any rivalry of worship in him and demanding his ability to demand for us our faithfulness, his ability to demand from us our exclusive worship of him. We can really see God's jealousy explained in in three different areas there's God's jealousy as a result of his honor and his glory, there's his jealousy as a result of his holiness. And then there is his jealousy as a result of his love. What I described in saying that he is in our midst. God's first, God's honor and glory. When man tries to glorify himself or bring honor to himself, like man does with these false teachings of humanism and universalism and social justice, we're replacing the importance on ourselves. That is a—it is a travesty. It is in so much contradiction to what God has revealed to us in His Word that it is short-sighted to the eternity. Not only is it in contradiction to the nature of man, but it is a travesty because we put the importance of worship on ourselves. We see the ultimate focus of eternity in our happiness, which isn't what the Bible teaches us. God is completely different because he created everything as a self-sufficient being. He didn't need anything. He created us out of love. And in doing so, God When he glorifies himself or attempts to bring honor to himself, that's simply the right order of things. He has the right to be honored and to be glorified. And so when it says that God is jealous over his own honor and glory, what we understand is that God is always pursuing his honor and his glory, not because he's in competition with anything but because it is simply the right order of things. In God's holiness, then, in his righteousness, his perfection, his complete separation from sin, God does not conform to any standards that are outside of himself. He is pure and holy. He's morally pure. And it isn't a character flaw for God to become jealous or even angry towards sin. It is in this holy nature that he does so. So there's the first two. We see God's jealousy explained in His honor and in His glory because it's the right order of things. The second part, we see God's jealousy and even His anger towards sin in His holiness because it is a righteous indignation towards sin. But this third part, this third part took me back this week. God's jealousy is linked to His love. His jealousy is linked to His love. Now remember, I'm still talking about this promise of God that says, The anger of the Lord be kindled against you and He destroy you off the face of the earth. This jealousy that God is actually explaining to us is linked to His love for His creation. And maybe even emphasizing His chosen nation, the nation of Israel that's going into the promised land. The verse from Zephaniah that I read emphasizes that he is saving us, that he is rejoicing over his creation, that he loves us so much. And so when we put these ideas together as they're put together here, God in our midst, saving us, rejoicing over us and becoming jealous whenever we chase after other gods. Is the same kind of jealousy a husband would reasonably present over the love and affection of his wife, or that a wife would have over the love and affection of their, her husband? This is something that he values so much, that he is jealous for it. God loves us and values our affection for him so much that he is jealous for it. He desires to have a relationship with us so much that he is jealous. Exceptionally vigilant to protect the love that we have for him. for our own benefit. His jealousy comes from a place of love, not because He needs us, but because He desires us. Not because He needs us, but because He knows that it's for our benefit that we desire Him. Think about how much time Moses has spent on this one point that we should love God. Everything that we have read and studied from on Sunday morning for the past seven weeks, if you're keeping track. Seven weeks has been spent on what does it mean to love God? And we get here and we find that God is genuinely jealous for our love. Genuinely reaching out and vigilantly, vigil- vigilantly protecting our own love of Him. When He sees us falling victim to these false ways of thinking, which, by the way, comes up as a result of not loving God, because we're falling victim to things that are clearly in contradiction to God's Word. We're trying to be spiritual without the spiritual component, which is knowing God by the way, is ridiculous. Spirituality does not exist without knowing God. Trying to rationalize or understand eternal things without an understanding of God, what a waste of time. And up came postmodernism. How important is it that we know God? The fact that He is a jealous God, provoked to protect us from ourselves, even to the point of promising His anger be stirred up against us to destroy us off the face of the earth, I want you to realize that this is a promise to protect us from ourselves. There are many false ways of thinking. There are many ways, that concepts, and ideas that we can come up with that even seem to make sense to us, that might even tickle a part of our brain that hasn't been stimulated before. That we might even get excited about what it means to understand these bigger picture items. It is a waste of time to understand them outside of what God has given us. This perfect, protected, inspired Word of God. It is everything that we have to hinge ourselves to. This is what we need to chase. Our understanding of God's love is not just a practical caution, but it is everything that our faith and our walk hinges to. If we want to grow in our understanding of who God is, if we want to grow as Christians, which, by the way, is the goal. We spent a lot of time talking about the important, well, or the sin of complacency whenever we studied the book of Malachi a few months ago. But the goal is to be growing in our spiritual faith, to be moving forward, to be developing, to not be stagnant, because, by the way, being stagnant is a waste of time. And it is ultimately where decay comes from. The goal is to be growing in our spiritual walk with God, and we cannot do that without a correct love for God, a desire for God born in us. And by the way, that love that comes from God is an an exceptional grace that comes from Him too. God is jealous. His jealousy comes from a place of love. It should not just prompt us out of a right and reverent fear of God to turn to Him, but it should also motivate us, as His motivation is to love us, to pursue Him. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way that the fear of God isn't, isn't just a childlike fear to avoid consequences. But the fear of God is a recognizing who he is and running to him. God is right, and he is holy, and he is just when he promises to judge us for our sin. When he promises to judge the world for their sin, for the iniquities of the world, that is a righteous judgment of God. It is deserved. It is warranted. It's fair. But His grace is even more than that. That He loves us so much that despite the sin, despite the inequity, despite the unfaithfulness, He has not abandoned us. He has not pulled away from us. We are not some sort of tail spinning experiment out in the middle of nowhere, but that He is with us sustaining all things for the purpose of our lives that we might have the opportunity to know him. The fear of God isn't just running away from him. It isn't just running to him out of fear for the consequences. The fear of God is running to him because we recognize who he is. These things that I've talked about this morning, they're, they're big ideas. I said that the sermon was a little weird this morning because I kind of... By the way, I'm sorry in my notes I had... They didn't update, and so you got the raw thoughts instead of like, normally I go through a process of like taking the Derek language and putting it into language that actually makes sense, which I have to do all the time for everything. And, and so you, I, didn't, I didn't have that ready for you this morning. But God's grace is bigger. It's even able to translate My unorganized thoughts. My real plea this morning is if you've understood God's grace, understood His jealousy, understood His anger even, in a different way, whether you've been a Christian your entire life or never come to a place of knowing Him, my real plea this morning is that you wouldn't ignore it, that you wouldn't be sitting here waiting for the clock to run down, but that you would really be ready to run to a God that hasn't abandoned us. To really plea with Him. To put inside of our heart what it means to love Him. And with that, we'll sing a song of invitation. If you need a plea with God if you need to ask Him to teach you what it means to love Him, I can think of no better time than right now. As we stand and get ready to sing, I ask that you wouldn't put off humbling yourself before God because He is a jealous God. 566.